But my background is as a television and radio producer, so I've been there um, able to sort of look at um, future storytelling, including virtual reality. Now, because I don't have any sense of how many people here have, have seen or indeed worked on virtual reality, it's going to be really useful for me to sort of know how to pitch this, because I, often when I, I talk um, around the BBC, especially to television producers, um, it, it, it's very clear that I need to really go back to basics and explain what we're talking about. Everyone pretends they know, but actually they're, they're helpful for an explanation. Um, I'm slightly worried about the low battery thing on this. I think it's all right, but who knows? It may all disappear in a, a puff of smoke in a minute. So how many people here has, work, has been working on a virtual reality project? Okay, a few. And how many people would be grateful for an explanation of the difference between video and, and CGI basically are... Um, and a little bit more. Okay, so I am going to do that because the, the, those of you working in it know all this stuff, but it, it will be useful um, to briefly explain it. Um, so I'll, I'll take you through. How many people have tried one of these? Most of you. And how many people have tried one of these? Oh, a few of you have. Yeah, okay. <laughs> these were, this is the Google Daydream cassette, which uses this new Pixel phone, um, and it was only launched um, just a couple of weeks ago. So this is an attempt to bring VR to, to more consumers using phones. It's quite a lot of things to stack up here for the moment. So I'm going to talk about what, what everyone's been trying to achieve in the, in the documentary and, and indeed the news world, which is use virtual reality to really put the audience in a new position where they're at the heart of the story, experiencing <laughs> and seeing it themselves. But because I work for an R&D department and I'm not some startup trying to make lots and lots of money from VR, I can be a little bit more honest about that, I hope, and, and tell you some of the challenges that we've been trying to focus on as well through that, both technical and editorial challenges, because we really do go together. And it's very early days, as, as, as I'm sure most of you know. The first thing to say is VR is nothing new. It's been going on in university and industrial labs, and there's lots of research and things we can all learn from in terms of how you achieve a sense of presence of being there. But, but some of that university research is also quite academic. It involves rethinking for um, more mass media consumption. So, for example, um, Professor Mel Slater from Barcelona University, who's pioneered virtual reality work on embodiment, which has been shown, proven to change attitudes. You put a white person in a black person's body, you put an adult in a child's body in VR, it changes the way they think. And he's tested that over time as well. But that before you become that person, you have to do a, a sort of five-minute setup process where you look at yourself in a virtual mirror and follow these exercises. Now, that's not going to work in the home if I put this on and I have to spend five minutes doing the exercises before I can even appreciate um, the virtual reality experience. So we've got to reinvent and, and find new ways of doing these with consumer technology. And then it all went a bit crazy when um, Facebook bought Oculus Rift, Google Cardboard came out, and then suddenly everyone wanted to be doing virtual reality. And um, we, we started to see some really extraordinary content, but also seeing some terrible content. But I'm absolutely convinced that it's, it's content, and good enough content, that in the end is going to make people want to buy these. We've got to have a piece that everyone starts talking about and is desperate to get on for Christmas so they can see it too. And I don't think we're there quite yet. So 360 video. 360 video viewed as with a virtual reality headset. Whoops. Sorry, I'm going to slide here. 
means that you've got a spherical video all around you. Its disadvantage at the moment is that there's no real depth to it. You're seeing very flat people. Um, stereoscopic 360 video um, is, is better, but I'd, I'd say it's still early days with, with all these things. But even 360 video means a whole different way of thinking about how you tell a story, where you put the camera. It's not just because you put a headset on doesn't mean you're suddenly going to have presence and empathy. It's about how you communicate and how you use it to evoke those things. So this is 360 video. You can see that I mean, up, up until recently, most people have been using a GoPro rig, which, which involves quite lengthy post-production because you have to stitch the footage together to create your spherical footage. Um, that's all getting better and better, and there are more and more production tools coming out that will speed that, those things up. But again, it's taken a little longer than a lot of us hoped. And then. Um, there's full-scale CGI here, and I use the example of Minecraft here because it's built in a game engine. It enables far more interactivity. You can move around. Um, you can have. You can build an artificial intelligence. It's it's, um, it, it's limited what you can achieve with that on the phone because you, you need more computational power to drive these complex experiences. But um, as, as phones get more and more. Um, Powerful, and the, the Pixel is the first one that's been able to, to do some of the things that have been released recently. We'll see more and more of that on mobile VR. Does that help the people who wanted an explanation of the differences? So, I mean, I'm sure in time these, these experiences will all converge. Right? Um, for those of you that have been working on VR, you know my explanation was a little simplistic in terms of where these boundaries lie, but, but those, those are the basic starting points. And of course, there are VR use cases across the industry. There's still lots of technical uses. Um, it's, it's impacting on every industry at the moment. Indeed, I was in Amsterdam two weeks ago for um, Europe VR Days, a, a wonderful Dutch conference, which brought together people from architecture, medicine, psychology, construction. So every industry, a bit like the early days of the web, is trying to think how they could use this technology. Um, and, and what sort of things they could do. So what makes a good VR experience? I, mean, I think these are the factors that we're all trying to go for. We're something that's highly immersive, that gives you a sense of presence of being there, and tricks your brain into being somewhere else. That's a very visceral and physical experience, that you, re you remember it like a, a memory of having actually been there. Um, it's great for understanding spatial stories for getting a sense of different locations. Um, wonderful for um, seeing things in a different scale than you could ever see in, in television or cinema and really playing with that creatively. And as I said earlier, it's been proven in, in, in laboratory um, conditions with, with slightly different VR headsets to um, change attitudes. So incredibly powerful. So um, about um, two years ago, we, we, we started to try and um, work on this. And I worked with a, a filmmaker called Peter Boyd McCain. Um, and we tried to, to identify what, what things would we, we should really try and look at in terms of 360 filmmaking. Um, and we, we identified the factors we were looking into that would, would give us a sort of recipe for a good 360 story. And we were very focused on stories where understanding the, the location was vital for you understanding that story. So seeing it for yourself and being able to look around helps you understand that better. And obviously stories as well, where a sense of presence there, again, um, enabled you deeper understanding of the situation. 
And we were determined just to sort of try and understand and create a new grammar of filmmaking. Um, 18 months ago, people were still saying, imagining 360 as long individual scenes where you faded to black at the end of the scene. And, and we thought, that's ridiculous. That's what they said in the early days of cinema. We've got to work out how to create a cut sequence of film and work out how to do that. But um, whereas 360 gives you new opportunities in terms of being able to look around, you lose out on lots of very um, useful techniques of traditional filmmaking, um, and especially the cutaway. And I think telling any complex emotional story where you can't, sorry, not cutaway, close-up, where you can't see a close-up of someone's face is, is causing us, us challenges. It's a different way of, it, it, I, I, at the moment, I'm not sure it, it can be helpfully used for every single story. And that's based on things that haven't worked as well as, as some of the ones that have. Um, and then there is the whole issue of camera movement, which we've been very careful about because I feel really sick with um, lots of VR. So I've been the one that said, no, 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 we can't do that. It makes me too sick. Yes, you can do very simple, straightforward camera moves, and, and most people won't feel sick. But I still think we've got to be very, very careful. Some of that's due to the technology and whether the frame rate's high enough and things like that. But we've, we've still, I don't want to produce content at the moment that's going to make anyone feel, feel terrible. Um, so we did a, you can see the picture, we did a, a, a 360 demo, about 360 in 360. With, um, uh, one of the technology correspondents from one of our um, major news shows, David Grossman. And then I could show it to TV people and they got it and they said, okay, okay, I get this, let's, let's explore it more. And I deliberately we filmed it by the House of Commons so that there were familiar locations and people could see what it looked like for themselves, but also going for exciting places. And so as a result of that, we ended up filming, um, and I think doing the first 360 film from the Calais migrant camp last June, before it really came became a story and, and was known about on the news. Um, and actually, when we went there, was the day it first became a story, because there was a strike at the port by ferry workers, which meant the port got closed down, and migrants were trying to climb onto lorries to get over to the UK. Um, but really, as a result of British people not being able to get to France, and lorries being held up, the story became big, not really because of the migrant crisis. Um, and so this is this is Paul, um, who is one of our BBC foreign correspondents, Paul Adams. Um, we found with the 360 rig we were using that filming fast-moving news when um, we were dodging police and CS gas was kind of proof that those sorts of cameras and techniques were not production ready. It was very hard to switch on six GoPros. Secondly, because the story had become big and for a bit, for, for a while, we were the only BBC team out there, uh, we had a difficult time explaining to BBC News why we couldn't just send footage back for the TV that day. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what we were able to do is, um, is, is show the, the sort of powerful nature of 360 for exploring the actual um, conditions of the camps and, um, um, and that was very, very compelling. This is this, this spread out 360 view you'll see there, but it was very strong when people put their headset on, they, they thought usually that they were in Africa, which is quite interesting because that's what we thought when we were standing there. Um, and 
it, it, it gave a very different sense from what the TV news was, was showing of, of the conditions in the camps and the <coughs> way that was approached. So we sort of had a good proof of concept. We needed the technology to catch up, so we slowed down a little bit. And then, come on, that's got a bit stuck. Oh, and then the small, has everyone seen the Theta S camera? Mm -hmm. um, that, that came out last like November, a week story. later this we filmed this in nice Paris. Republic. Most people are standing silent for a few minutes in front of this spontaneous memorial to the victims. So when the Theta S camera came out for the first time, we had a consumer camera that wasn't of terribly high quality in terms of pictures but you could potentially give to someone, they could switch on quickly, and they could film a scene in 360. Um, I think my computer's just died, so for some reason, this camera is in the so if anyone wants to come up, you can do that. So what happened was, how could that be? Is it, can I jiggle it? It's not power. Okay. 
So, so who, who would imagine? So this is actually, I mean, I'm just going to shout if that's okay. This is David Cameron announcing the European referendum. <laughs> this, is, um, this is actually very cool. This is the BBC News program, program called Click, who did a whole 30-minute 360 program, which was groundbreaking and did have some very good things in it. This is the rocket one. This was actually beautiful. This was, um, this was for Obama's visit to Havana. And um, a, a very creative producer produced a, a lovely story with a dancer talking about her life. This was our, our, the floods in January last year. Which of these, these videos do you think did best? And which did worst? Answer. No, sadly, Sally, because that got, no, it, the rocket did best. Mm. Um, this didn't do very well. You can hardly see him. Did it take any of the fails, Carl? Well, no, now that's historic 360. The problem is, they put the camera on the other side of Downing Street, <coughs> too far away. And one of my major rules to people now doing 360, this sort of thing, is where can you put the camera? So I want to talk now about um, CGI use, which really can put you in the story in a much more um, visceral way. Um, and this was our attempt to sort of look at how we could create a CGI-based piece um, based on the migrant crisis, and, and um, I mean specifically news and news footage and interviews um, from last year. Um, this is very, some very, very powerful um, drone footage from Lesbos. Um, and so we worked with Artman Animation. Do you all know this? They produce Wallace and Gromit and Shaw the Sheep. So unlikely people to be wanting to do virtual reality on the migrant crisis. Um, but they're brilliant animators and brilliant creatives. And I, I really felt they had something unique to, to offer. So we paired them up with um, a news journalist. And um, we created a piece. Um, which, which involved a lot of thinking, a lot of work, and a lot of constant simplifying, where you meet a family of Syrian refugees on a beach in Turkey, and, and through them you hear about their second disastrous attempt to cross over the Mediterranean to Turkey. And when you're sitting in the boat with them, so you have a simple avatar, you have a large head and legs, and you feel the waves coming across, you see the, you feel their fear. They're no polygon-like creatures. It doesn't work as a, as a flat screen animation. But, but I can tell you, when you put the Oculus Rift on, um, you, most people found it very powerful. And I've made um, a couple of very tough news reporters have a tear in their eye and really reflect on it because it's brought home to them the, the emotion of the story. Um, so I'll just play you the trailer for that now. Sort of 
cue noise cases, the eyes and things really look at you. So we really concentrated on those and did lots of tests to get that working. The third thing is the Ardman, who are a stop um, motion animation company, resorted to um, Mo -mo -catch motion caption for the first time with this because it was simply impossible to, to um, make that project in the time without. So the, the, the physical gestures, I think, do feel very human, even though they're not, it's obviously not sort of high-res um, graphics. Um, and, and maybe also the fact that they don't look completely like real people actually still enables your imagination to work a little bit and you can um, see what you want to see from them and it, it, it's not all completely in your face and you don't dislike or um, react badly to how they look. It, it enables you to, to sort of feel, feel what they're like um, and not, not judge that too much. In terms of things I can tell you to share in terms of how long it takes to do these things, it took much, much longer than we expected. The script took much, much longer than we ever, ever expected, and I had to be quite brutal in cutting scenes and stuff, because the ambition was so great from the people doing this, but, but creating yet another um, virtual um, environment was going to just be too much. We, we very cleverly um, used the, the art and the lighting to, to simplify the amount of um, creative work needed. So the fact it's set at night, um, limits again the amount of that the scene you have to build. Obviously, um, using low, no, low polygon um, illustration in an artful way has helped enormously. The lighting is very artful and clever. So, one of the things that we were very aware of was um, that migrants are constantly using their cell phones. Um, and so, they had the idea of, of using those as the main lighting source. Um, so, when people held them up, it put their faces. So little creative techniques like that that not only reinforce some of the, the story but enabled us to um, um, then in, in, in that night time use a sort of realistic light source was, was, was highly, highly effective. We also <coughs> gave the scale. So when the Turkish um, Coast Guard boat comes, you sort of get a surprise. It's one of those magic trick moments you can use in VR. You, you, it, it, um, you're distracted by something else. You suddenly look around and there was this huge <laughs> ship with a light um, stinging your eyes looking at you. Um, and the last thing is that we had to be very careful. We were putting people on a rough sea with waves and wind, and we didn't want to make them feel sick. So we got lots of advice from um, the um, Professor Anthony Steed, who's um, Professor of Virtual Reality at UCL, who I share an office with in London, on how to do that. So we don't actually move the boat. So there's lots of trickery to achieve the effect. And I think this is across all these these sorts of examples. You you have to find you have to think about what you're trying to achieve and then you have to use very creative effects to, to, to get that across. So you're if we really had moved people about from the boat and made it totally real, I think most people would be being sick in their, their masks. Um, there is spatial audio. I'm going to talk about audio in, in, in a minute more, and I think again that that's highly effective, and certainly for when you you come across the um, Turkish rescue boat on your right, that that is one of the cues that directs you there. Um, but there are two. It, it feels for me in in VR at least there are two schools of audio um, coming together that have a lot to work, learn, and um, find out from each other. Gaming audio, which is very precise, spatialized objects, um, and more rich cinematic <coughs> audio. And th those two things are slightly in conflict at the moment. We need the best of both worlds. So, meanwhile, <laughs> 
on the 360 plan, we are also creating and trying to produce some higher-end 360 documentary examples based on our experiences of filming in places like Calais and really trying to take that forward as an art form, introduce more CGI effects and things like that. And this is where you start to see the 360 and the virtual reality um, merging. So the resistance of honey, um, which is, 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 is showing in Amsterdam at the moment, is an immersive um, profile of um, a very um, interesting beekeeper who not only makes honey but makes um, electronic music from his bees. Quite weird and wonderful. But we wanted to show, I mean, my purpose and my sort of storytelling demonstrator purpose behind this was very much to show that you could use um, virtual reality 360 for an in-depth profile that really enabled you to see and understand someone's world. But starting with a politician was probably less interesting than starting with a um, quite weird beekeeper and being able to then to effects as well, show people what it's like to be inside the beehive. Now, of course, you can't just put a 360 camera in a beehive, but again, you can, you can work artistically and with effects to give people the impression of, of what, that, what that's like. And um, if you, if you um, go and see, you'll see that's, that's quite a cool moment with bees and honey and honeycomb crawling all around your head. Um, 360 Cross Rail the Musical, that's a tour of these enormous railway tunnels under London. Next time, when you come to Heathrow in 2018, you'll be in central London in 15 minutes and you'll know all about this. At the moment they're laying the tracks. That was an attempt to take you on a tour of a unique place where you wouldn't normally be able to go. But that's really hard from a storytelling point of view because then it just ends up being um, a, a, a tour, is it that different from, say, um, Google Street View or something like that? So lots of people are doing that, but I've, um, I've struggled to make really compelling stories that are basically just tours and environments. Um, what we did with that one in the end was set it to music. So I got a brilliant songwriter. Um, I gave him lots of engineering facts about Crossrail, the amount of concrete, the amount of steel, and um, he managed to construct the song that enabled us to cut footage of not only a train going over your head at the beginning and track laying and um, various concrete pouring, but also of um, this rather cool 360 footage. They discovered a plague pit under Farringdon Station in Central London. <coughs> so watch through a VR headset, you are right by these bodies and rib cages of these plague victims that they're, they're currently studying. So, uh, a, a very sort of 1930s attempt to do storytelling, really, just set it to music and hope it, it works. Um, and <laughs> the story of Betty Coracle is another sort of different storytelling technique, but virtual reality needs um, fireside storytelling. So you are in a Scottish cottage with a storyteller called Tom Muir. Um, he starts telling you a story, you can smell the peat fire, you can, you know, you're in this beautiful Scottish situation. And then he tells you this tragic story of this young woman who was duped by a whaler who got her pregnant, who promised her everything and then left her on a whaling boat to Russia. And she um, eventually kills herself, and, but her grave is still on Orkney. So what we did with that was um, we evoked the story. The story lives in your imagination through um, a spatialized audio soundtrack. 
but it's evoked through the beautiful landscapes of this Scottish island. So that's another sort of technique of just giving you this sort of visual backdrop, much more passive, but another interesting possibility of the 360 VR with strong story at the heart. And then finally, Fire Rescue 360. This was trying to be a bit more TV. It is documentary. It's a combination of interviews with this very brave British firefighter called Paul Rich, who saved six children from a house fire on Christmas Day in 2016. Um, that's the business coming. Um, and I'm not going to play either. It's Christmas Day 2012. I spent the day with my family and my two children, having their presents. I had to come in to start a night shift, Christmas day night. I started at seven o'clock in the evening, and around 10 to eight, we had a call come in. We all get dressed in full firefighting clothing. Once everybody's dressed, we mount the appliance and make our way on blue lights and sirens to the incident. You can see that's quite a sort of choreographed scene with the interview there, where the firefighters come down. But then, what's good, what's amazing about this is we use CGI to um, and, and a mixture of sort of, of, of effects as well from an effects company to show you what it was like to be what it was like to be a firefighter. Now, lots of people in the BBC were saying, "Oh yeah, that'd be great. You could be the fireman sliding down the pole. Oh, you could do this." So we did do quite a lot of experiments with on-head cameras, but I'm afraid they just, at the moment, in terms of what we can do with them, they just make you feel sick, dizzy, and confused, because you're not in, your head's not in control of where you're looking. So although we use one shot, where we've done that sort of fireman point of view shot, um, generally, we've just had to leave it so you are there with them. So I'm going to show you a, this is the equi-tangler spread out footage, but it's, it's, you can sort of, you'll, you'll get a sense from this of the power of this. I believe the father and children smashed the windows in the kitchen. In that situation, it lets oxygen in and it exacerbates the conditions. We heard uh, kids screaming down the other end of the building over to where we were. Set in a CG background? 
Um, it was shot, so it's basically layers and layers. It was shot, we, um, it, it's through compositing. So we shot the empty stairs, we shot the farmer walking up, we shot, and we then filmed it in, the, um, in one of Britain's fire training colleges so that we could have lots of um, traditional um, effects, working with an effects company, but then some CGI on top of that to sort of blend it. So it's, it's a lot of work, um, but again, it just shows you that you just you have to think about the effect you want to achieve and then how you're going to do that. So, so what it gives you, and I can, I can show people afterwards, is a real sense of being there in the fire, um, smelling the smoke, seeing what it's like. Um, and they rescue the children, and it has a happy ending, because they did rescue all those children. It's got a very touching ending. Um, so I, with slight anticipation, I went to show this to the London Fire Brigade because I thought, well, God, what a real farmer going to think of this. But um, as you see from the quote here, I'll read it out in case you can't see. Um, the London Fire Brigade Commissioner, the head of the London Fire Brigade Commission, was incredibly impressed. I and mean, he, he really did think it gave an absolute sense of what it was like to be in a real fire. And he said, this film is the most realistic representation of being at a real fire that I've seen. We've never been able to show people the dangers and difficulties our firefighters have faced before. Um, and so, it, you know, it works. It will get better and better. This is just the start of that sort of thing. Um, and we're going to be um, trying to show it to, to um, greater audiences there. Um, originally, when our deal with the London Fire Brigade was that there needed to be a fire safety message, this, this particular fire started on Christmas Day with um, you know, joysticks, scented joysticks, burning on a pile of laundry, and it fell over and, and set fire to it. But actually, this, this film is so sort of visceral and frightening that um, it's the fire safety message in itself. <laughs> so I also want to say I've talked about some of the projects I've been more directly involved with because I don't want to um, take credit for other things but there are lots and lots of things that have been going the BBC is a big organisation there are also some other very very fine CGI based VR experiences including Oscar Raby's Easter Rising Voice of a Rebel which is trying to give people a sense of taking them into the past that takes you back <coughs> to Dublin in 1919, and home, a spacewalk where you become um, the British astronaut Tim Peake and had to do a, an exercise that he had to train for in space. Um, and most of these will all be public available to download for free. Some of them are already on Taster, so you can go and try re-rate there. But you're, you, if you look out over the next few weeks, um, lots, lots will be available for you to try and see. And the last one I want to talk about is a, is a rather unusual one because it came about through a very strange route, the Turning Forest, which is a beautiful, <laughs> magical VR experience where we, we didn't set out with a big story that we needed to tell in VR. It was a much more experimental piece, and curiously, it started as a, 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 an, a science and engineering, engineering research council grant to look at the future of spatial sound. And some extraordinary pieces were um, commissioned for that, uh, where the sound travels all around you. They were, they were designed to be sort of short drama pieces that illustrated how sound could be more complex um, rather than just working with what we've got. And when about um, 18 months ago, everyone said, we've got, to, we've got to solve the sound problem for VR. How do we do spatial sound really well for VR? I kept hearing about pieces that had great sound, putting my headphones on and saying, I think we could do better than that. We, we've really got to <laughs> get this right. And so as a result of that, we ended up working with um, Oscar Raby and Katie Morrison from Bertolt in a, a co-production with our audio team. 
and I've, I've, I've iterated and created this wonderful, magical, and lovely experience which we took to Tribeca last year. Um, and I wanted, for me, this, this, this is a boy blogger at Tribeca who absolutely loved it. He's called Cooper, and I just want to play you this because ultimately, for me, this is why all this VR work is worth it because at the moment it's, it's, it's not all brilliant, but it will be kids like Cooper that ultimately benefit. It, it was amazing. It's like the graphics are amazing. Normally, when you play like an Xbox, like I do, it's normally like you just see like the front and you don't see anything around. But I was like turning around and looking up, and I saw like trees and leaves falling, and the water was so realistic. And like getting lifted up, I, I really felt like I was getting lifted off the ground. Do you like riding on the monster? I did like riding on the monster. And then it turned into like ice, so it's kind of like where it goes. But he couldn't stop talking, and he read the most <laughs> magical blog about it. And although I'm, I'm totally committed to using documentary to tell difficult stories about the world in new ways, I also think we've got to bring people some joy um, with <coughs> virtual reality. And um, it's, it, this is what has been so special about the Turning Forest. So we have just created, and it will come out this week, a daydream version of the Turning Forest. And that enables you, instead of having to react rather awkwardly with the monster's um, musical teeth and the birds with your eyes, you can use the controller to play them. And it works really well. When I, I first saw that, I, at first I thought we could never exceed what we'd achieved on the Oculus Rift in terms of um, the magic of the experience. But I think we've done it. And again, it has absolutely um, wonderful sound. And again, quite deliberately, we haven't shown everything. The, the, some of this story is supposed to take place in your imagination. And although we've created the environment for that to take place, and you can interact with that environment and make music, um, you you also um, some of it works in our head, which I think is what makes it so powerful. Oops. So I thought I was going to paint you the trail, but that doesn't seem to be working. Let me just get it on here. No, this this screen is not off. Um, yeah, let's try. <coughs> this is just a little bit of the film that I just cut to show you. So again, you can't see on a flat screen how magical this is to be there, but this is right going to the magical charters to you. He's very scary because he's very big in your virtual reality <laughs> I faced it, looked at its gigantic black saucer-shaped eyes. I did the only thing I could think of. So there we are, the turning forest, and um, I hope that's going to bring a lot of people some joy and um, make them smile. So thank you very much. That's all I'm going to talk about for now, and I'm going to now open it up to questions from you so we can talk in more depth about some of these projects. We have a mic here, so please raise your hand and I will bring the mic to you. <laughs> Uh, thanks very much for the talk. That was really great. Um, um, I completely agree about the difference between the 360 camera and the CG slash 3D environment. Um, and I was wondering, from your talk, it seemed like in the, in the instance of art and animation that you go towards building environments rather than taking a camera into a real environment. And I'm wondering, do you feel, though, through VR, we're going to move more to a fictional, animated, constructed storytelling and away from documentary? 
No, I think it's you. I mean, perhaps I haven't said. I mean, this, I work for an enormous organisation. I've just, I've, I've picked. I suppose because I'm working directly with engineers and technologists and trying to sort of work out how to use that new technology to tell stories. I've, I've picked stories that I think would be suited to showing it off best. But there are. It, it, I think it's really too too early to say. Um, it, it, it just is a difficult, um, or one, or, although wonderful environment to be working when there is so, so much hype about what VR can do, but we still are trying to work out exactly how to achieve that. Um, but I, I, I wouldn't want to make any presumptions about which, which form of content at the moment is, is, is going to work or not work. We've seen promising starts across the board, and I think it, it offers something very, very strong to documentary because of its immersive nature and because of this ability to put you inside the story. Hi, I have a question about your piece, We Wait. Mm -hmm. I had the opportunity to watch it at the Sheffield Festival, and I was um, deeply moved by it. I was really impressed. And when you explained that you had guys' interaction, was it actually, or is it an interactive piece? I didn't realize when I watched it. Like, um, if I look somewhere else, do they don't, like, do they move their heads towards me? Like, how can you explain something more about that? Yeah, it's very subtle, and we're actually doing um, a, a proper um, research paper on that um, over the next month. Where and, and this will be incredibly useful to producers for making VR because we are we are testing with um, quite a large group. This is with UCL in London. Um, the avatar switched on and off. How important is having some kind of avatar um, and embodiment for how much you enjoy the experience? Um, and secondly, switching that interaction on and off. I think the interaction is very subtle, um, but I think it's important. Our original intention was to have far more interactive, far more interactivity. So by looking at people, you would, they would then speak to you. But because we were also trying to do a compelling story, as usual, you end up making a, a balance between do you want interactivity or do you want a sense of drama? And unfortunately, that again, possibly because of where the technology was. It was too slow, it was too stop and start, there was no flow to it, so we had to abandon it. We tried all, all those sorts of things, but had to abandon it for the sake of a good story. <laughs> yes, so should we move it nearer the front? Uh, thank you for this presentation. Um, I um, had a question that segues a bit into what you were saying with the avatars. Um, the VR experience can be so visceral. I was wondering um, if any researcher have drawn a line with telling traumatic stories and thinking about, you know, mass shootings, for example, uh, or even the fireman story. Um, up until what point can you push those dark? Okay. So I've been very careful. There are absolutely extraordinary um, and brave attempts to tell tell much tougher stories that you'll see at. Um, at DocLab that have been um, supported by um, festivals and things like that. But, um, and I should have probably said this at the start, because we're a big public service broadcaster, <coughs> obviously where we come in is trying to get these experiences to bigger audiences. Um, and I'm, I'm very aware, especially at the moment, if it, in an organization like the BBC that has very tough um, editorial standards that it has to adhere to, that when you're needing to innovate and, and work out with new technology how to tell stories, if you, compl if you complicate that too much, 
by having a very, very editorially risky story, you can end up spending all your time dealing with that and not on innovating in terms of, of, of the story. So that's why something like Turning Forest, which does not involve issues, um, was actually perfect for us to be able to push interactivity in terms of sound and, um, and really advanced spatial sound. If we'd been doing a difficult issue, um, such as war crime, we would have ended up spending all our times dealing with lawyers on, on what we could show, what we couldn't, and um, dealing with that. So, so it's an interesting <coughs> one to raise. So I think you know we will start doing that, but our, our biggest purpose was understanding how to use it and working out how to start to distribute that to broader audiences. So we're a, we're a stage on, we're less brave, perhaps, um, but, but it's important to you. Yeah, uh, thanks for the presentation. I'm uh, just wondering about um, building audience for, for these, these kind of things. Uh, uh, one barrier that seems to be broken by the Oculus in terms of its computational uh, display capacity is is this broken the vomit barrier that? Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, you can still make people vomit with it. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you can. I've seen we, really we've had to sort of kill a few things that people have made that uh, you put it on and you think, oh. Um, yeah, well, this synchronization of the mind and, yeah. and moving your head and all that 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 yes. at least the reviews of the Oculus. Say that. Then there's the the price element. The Oculus is still pretty expensive. Um, I'm not sure of the price points of some of these other things. And the third thing, which goes back to computation, is uh, how much of the computational capacity can you put in the cloud so that you can go home, you can pick up your glasses, and you can sort of plug this into the same place where the TV comes from, and then pick a, a VR experience to watch uh, without having to have a very expensive set of glasses, or a very uh, powerful computer at home. Yeah, I, I, if I were from Google or Oculus, I might be able to answer that better. I mean, I, I, I am a skeptic I, um, about how um, much it will take to get people to regularly strap a box to their heads like this. Um, I, I, I mean, I formerly was a journalist, so I, I just do retain some sort of sense of uh, I reported on internet fridges and various other things that haven't happened. This, is, this has got to happen. There is enough here that is going to change our lives. And I'm sure by the time my children are grown up, it will have infiltrated every area of their life. <coughs> it's not going to look like this. But the first, well, it wasn't a pocket calculator. The first calculator cost £750, and that would be you know, hugely inflated now. And you've just got to see this is, this is early days. It's fun now. But I'm, I'm also very aware that our audience... <laughs> People are willing to buy things like the Oculus Rift, are early adopters, probably gamers. They're going to be it's gonna be hard to convince them to do some of the to do watch perhaps even we wait because that's not what they're buying it for. So we've got to to get that broader audience, we've got to do lots of outreach work, we've got to be going into museums where nobody would expect to see VR. We've we've got to continue that to make so people actually until you experience it, you won't you won't see it power. So we've, we've got to find other ways to um, develop audiences who don't have the money to spend on powerful computers and um, headsets right now. Obviously, it's quite expensive. Um, so I'm just wondering, uh, is the BBC more open to co-productions and co-financing? Things like that on the projects. 
I think for online stuff, it's I, I, um, it, it's it's very early <coughs> and it's, at the moment it's not entirely clear to me within the organisation who will be funding this project. I mean, you're you're absolutely right. That has to be an argument that we start to make first. But convince, convincing um, a television organisation that virtual reality was um, something that the BBC should be considering, just as early engineers in the 1930s worked out what to do with a box and wires that is television, um, was our first task. So yes, at the moment, anyone in television in the BBC will be highly sceptical because the audience reach is so, so small. Um, so we, we've got to do a lot of making the case on, on, on that next, next stage for, for joint finance things. Is there a sort of mechanism which people from outside the BBC can pitch ideas? Not just yet. Not just yet. No. Even if they've got some money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, potentially. potentially. <laughs> it, it, it's just it, it's as you know, it's a very the BBC is a very big organisation, and what would be ideal now would be a, a central place where you could go that would be a, a hub of expertise and and the place to take commissions that could therefore commission wisely. Um, and and we're, we're we're at the moment we're reflecting on what's happened so far and, and working out what to do. Hi. Hi. Um, I have two questions. Uh, one was you mentioned that we wait took longer than expected and I was curious how long was that? Okay. And um, what the budget was for we wait? I, I'm not I'm not really supposed to reveal the budget. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, it's not that high, really. I mean, as you can see, that was we, we worked the, the, the whole idea of the art and the low polygon count and creating an environment at night that didn't involve massive masses of work was all deliberately to try and do something on a lower budget. Um, I would <coughs> say, I'm just trying to think exactly, We it was about four months, I would say. Four months. And how, yeah. how long did you anticipate that it would take? So you said it was much longer then. Well, I don't, I don't consider, I mean, I think we can still keep working on it, you see. I oh, would consider it no. in terms of where we, uh, uh, the list, the backlog list of things we didn't get to do okay. is, is quite big. Um, so in the end, um, you, you deliver something and you, you create it and you, you get on with it. But um, we could do so much more with it. Um, so, so I suppose I was thinking, yes, if you, if you really wanted to achieve what we set out to achieve in the beginning, it would take at least twice, at least twice or three times as long. Okay. So double your budgets, double your production times, and allow lots and lots of time for um, getting the story and script right at the beginning. Um, so because Artman used stop animation, they're famous for making things from plasticine. They used, um, I wish I could show you a picture actually, but they, they used for, when they, when they were doing the sort of planning of each scene, they did make models and photograph them, which was a very interesting thing. It's one of the things I think you can't do, is you can't just get a script writer involved who doesn't understand the mechanics of um, <coughs> constructing a story effectively in a 360 environment. So you've got to sort of start <coughs> and keep iterating and then work it out and practice on paper or with plasticine or however you're going to do it. Um, the scripts I've seen that haven't worked have been just, have been you know, a good story that might work with a uh, with more conventional filmmaking techniques, but as soon as you ask questions about, so how are you going to do this without a cutaway, or how are you going to do this without a close-up of that woman's face to show and draw attention to it, um, that, that's where it gets difficult. And you might have to, at the moment, change the story a bit 
to be able to do it in the internship. <coughs> um, we're at that stage still. I have one more question, sorry, about um, POV. I noticed that the the POV of the user changes, and and um, in the earlier, more newsy pieces, you were still an observer or like an audience member versus becoming more of a participant in the stories. And I was curious how you thought that felt differently in pieces that were fiction versus documentary, and the role of being a participant in a documentary versus just like in the scripted context. Yeah. I, I think it's just enormously more, more complicated to do that effectively. I mean, interestingly, the initial idea that came to us from art and animation was you, in PR, were going to be um, a refugee and you were going to negotiate your way across the Hungarian border. Um, but one, that involved an enormous crowd scene, which was going to be very expensive to create. Secondly, at the time, we only had game and interaction that we could use with the opposite. And, and all the sort of questions about, well, how would you speak? How would you interact? What would it be? So that sort of thing you could probably do in a game um, became very, very difficult in VR. So I think it will happen. But um, at the moment, we're, the technology is limiting us and the, the sort of just the amount of work required to develop a really effective story where you have that sort of agency and it's, it's realized through it. It's, is enormous, so um, you need you need big game budgets, I'd say, for that, or big Hollywood budgets. It's, it's <coughs> not not only are you creating all the challenges you would have creating a sort of flat screen game with that, but then you've got to make it work all around you, and it's just an enormous amount of, of thinking that needs to go into that to still create a compelling story. Yes. Yeah, uh, just a boring one. How many screens are actually out there? How many Oculuses, Vives, and do you know uh, any numbers? Oh, well, share? the figures keep changing, and I, I don't, I, and again, I don't know quite who to believe. Um, I mean, I thought with the, the, the figures seem to vary from 100,000 to 300,000. Does anyone here have more up-to-date figures? But I, I don't know, they're all being a little bit cagey about it. So you have to write, you have to be very careful to check which question was asked to get the figure that's being provided by whichever company it is, because obviously they want <coughs> their share value and everything else to make it seem, seem huge. But I think, even though I think you could assume that anyone who has this, um, this is the, the Gear VR, is probably likely to share it, so more people are gonna have access to it. And so it will have far more users than just, um, for example, a cell phone. Um, I think the num I mean, the numbers of people who would be using this every day are so tiny, and I think that that that's our greatest challenge. Um, yes, we can do compelling content that people coming to events like this want to watch and um, um, think it's wonderful. Um, but to do this at home and then to, to be able to watch it every week and every day, even is is you know that will be the the ultimate challenge for when newspapers, broadcasters, or media companies, whatever form they take. And one more, could you elaborate a little bit more how and with which cameras you work on these, uh, some of these specific pro projects you just showed? Well, we've used, we've used what's called a Freedom 360 GoPro rig, which is a, a sort of standard rig. I mean, we didn't, I mean, I've been doing a lot of camera watching. I did that obsessively last year. <laughs> but um, found very quickly that lots of cameras were advertised with all sorts of promise of what they might achieve. But the reality was um, all of them offered something brilliant and unique, but all of them had, um, at the moment, um, things that didn't work so well. And um, 
if you if you consider the whole workflow and everything else. But the but the better cameras are coming. So there's the Nokia Ozo, there's the, the Google um, Odyssey, and, and they're all they're all great, but they are expensive and they're big. The one advantage I would say of the GoPro rig is it is small, so you genuinely can get into places that you can't get large large cameras and. Um, given that all these 360 cameras at the moment tend to have very wide-angle lenses, you really do need to get it right. <coughs> if you haven't got the control, you would have with other cameras to <coughs> film the scenes you want to film the way you want to do it. You're working, you have to work to the limitations of the camera and use that to your creative benefit. This is kind of another gear-ish um, question. Um, so I have a Rico 360, or Rico Theta S, um, and what I found is that the Facebook and YouTube compression makes it look really crappy, yeah. and it looks really great in the um, native app. But have you guys had any experience with your player, like how do you um, deal with compressing the files to upload them? So we don't have a BBC player yet. Um, that will be based on on um, audience reach and need, and, and it will happen, but at the moment we've just been putting um, experimental stuff on YouTube and Facebook too. So yes, you're absolutely right. It's a real problem. It gets massively com compressed, and um, it, 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 it doesn't look look as good as it should. Um, I mean, this will all change, though. I mean, this is this is again we're we're trying to do lots of we're trying to do lots of things before it's ready. The wonderful thing about that is we can start to understand how to tell the story as well. And then hopefully when the technology gets better and we can all see these films in crystal clear <laughs> high-end films, we'll, we'll know some of those, those, we'll have the answers to some of those other problems and we'll know what will work and what won't. Um, so if you see it as a, um, an experimental time where you can sort those problems out, it's, it's good. It's just, if there wasn't quite so much hype, it would be easier to do that. <laughs> but everything is now being sold as, hey, a remarkable 360 VR experience. And then you look at it and you think, that's not, <laughs> that's not that great. Um, and the sort of misunderstanding of empathy and presence as well um, from, because, because, the fact, because there are consumer cameras and within an organisation like the BBC it means any producer now can go out and make their own film. They'll sort of, uh, you know, take those buzzwords and just think holding it up like that will give you remarkable empathy and presence whether, whether you're standing in the middle of a square with nothing happening or in a room like this. I mean, it's just people are um, a little overinflating what it can do and forgetting the, the amount of technical and editorial skill involved in creating wonderful experiences. Yeah. I have another question about the distribution. Um, if I go on the Taster website, can I download pieces and then uh, like download them for my Oculus Rift or my Samsung yes. gear? Yeah, you can. Um, but they, some of them will be, I mean, we're trying out a number of platforms now, so that's just starting. But we wait as on Taster. Um, you will start to see them on third-party platforms soon. And so are you, are you planning to create an app, like in, in the Oculus store, and the Samsung store? Is it going to be like a BBC? You, yeah. Is that the direction you're wanting to go? Eventually. At the moment, there, aren't, there isn't enough content to do that. But you'll see as well on Daydream, hopefully on Thursday, you'll see the, the turning forest there and be able to watch that too. Okay. Put headphones on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's, it, I think we've come to the end of the session now, haven't we? So if anyone else wants to ask me a question, I'll, I'll stay behind. I don't have to get my plane till 4 o'clock. Um, I can even show you this if you'd like. Thank you very much for coming. And today,